Hello everyone, this is Lin Chen, and this is the last episode for a while of the Actors Diet podcast. Episode number 100, as I had mentioned in episode 99 and maybe even in episode 98, I'm going to be taking a little break. I feel like 100 podcast episodes talking to people about their history with food is enough, and I have other things to focus on, like directing my first feature this year, and it's also pilot season, which is a very busy time for actors. So if you want to keep in touch with me, you can always go to Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. I won't stop doing that. My handle is at Ms. Lin Chen, M-S-L-Y-N-N-C-H-E-N. And here we go with episode number 100. I got you guys a really, really amazing guest to listen to, so hopefully you won't be too mad at me for taking a break on this podcast, which, by the way, you know, if I meet someone and it's easy to record, there may be more. So stay subscribed, and you never know. Thank you for listening, and here is Cheryl Strait. In 2012, my book club read Wild. Wow. And it was a revelation for me. Um, my father had just passed away, and uh, I was I was dealing with the aftermath of having um, an eating disorder for many, many years. So reading your book, going and gathering with other women, feasting on, a, we had a trail mix bar. <laughs> Like, a, <laughs> awesome. like a, a bar where you made your own trail mixes. Uh, it was very, very therapeutic for me. Oh, wonderful. Um, I'm so gl- I'm so glad to hear that. I, I always am. I feel like that's always a gift to, to feel like something I wrote actually helped someone. So thank you. Yeah. And then I saw you on Oprah and now I listen to Dear Sugar. So this is just <laughs> this is such an immense joy for me. You're actually the second author I've had on this podcast who has had a movie <laughs> written where uh, a, a giant movie star has played them, the other being Susan Orlean, who Meryl Streep played in um, Adaptation. Yeah, I love her. And I listened to your episode with her, which was wonderful. Oh, thank So I'm you. honored to be following in her footsteps. I know. I'm like, I got the market cornered on this <laughs> <laughs> on this particular thing but uh, let's on, on writers who have books to film you got to talk to elizabeth gilbert next and yes. i can think of a few other people <laughs> yeah so um i would i do want to talk about food though great and um you're from minnesota is that correct i am a little a little known fact i'm from minnesota i, I grew up there and i always say that's where i'm from because uh, I, I, you know, most of my childhood memories are there, but I actually was born in Pennsylvania and I lived in Pennsylvania for the first five or six years of my life, moved to Minnesota when I was six. Where in Pennsylvania? So I was born in this little town called Spangler, Pennsylvania, which is in coal country in central Pennsylvania. My father grew up there. He grew up um, in Ebensburg in the sort of Johnstown area. And he and his, his family, um, were really coal miners. And so that, those are my earliest memories and my earliest memories of food, if that's what you're going to ask about, are really there in, in that little town in central Pennsylvania. What was a typical dinner like there? Well, you know, it's funny because it, it's kind of, I mean, I have these like shadow memories of things that seem almost unreal to me now, except I know they're true. And Things, I mean, there were some really unusual things on the menu. My grandfather and father and his brothers would sometimes go hunting, and believe it or not, they would hunt squirrel, um, which is awful. <laughs> and um, I, I remember as a very young girl um, eating a dish that I was told, oh, this is like squirrel meat. And I was like, no, this is, um, you know, even then, like it freaked me out as a young kid because, of course, I didn't really, uh, that seemed really foreign to me. Um, So that's one of my earliest memories of like food that was weird. But, you know, our our diet, my mom was always a kind of, uh, you know, very mindful of natural things and being healthy. And so, you know, throughout my childhood, I really, when I think about food, I think about my mom always trying to um, sneak like healthy things into our food. You know, she was always the one who would, have the the vegetables in the potato salad um, or the things that we would always, my brother and sister and I were trying to pick out of of the meals. 
um, because she was always, you know, trying to get nutrition into us. I remember um, the only thing I know about Minnesota yes. is hot dish. Did you eat hot dish? Yeah, you know, it's funny because I, I, I moved to Minnesota when I was six and seemed to be, you know, from there on, it seemed like I was a native Minnesotan. I come from Swedish ancestry. And so there's a lot of kind of blonde, blonde haired, blue eyed people like me in Minnesota. And you're right, there is this huge hot dish thing. And I have to say, it's interesting. When I was thinking about talking to you, I was thinking about this dynamic that's that was really a strong current in Minnesota. And that is this way in which we did not kind of fit in by we, I mean, my family didn't like fit into that kind of the, the, the sort of typical thing you'd think about when you think about the Minnesota diet, that is like hot dish and, and, you know, kind of the, the sort of casseroles where the potato chips are, you know, crinkled on the top, you know, and, um, a lot of sort of jello, you know, jello salads and things like this. And my mother was not that way. She was kind of a, a more of like, I think what a lot of people would have called a hippie, um, you know, food-wise, she wasn't necessarily a hippie in any other way, but certainly in the meals she made for us, she was always going to be the one who, like I said, sneak those vegetables in, but also do these kind of um, what were at the time, like in the 70s, really considered weird, like cooking quinoa, or, you know, she grew a lot of our food once we moved. Um, I, I first lived outside of Minneapolis when I first moved to Minnesota, but by the time I was 12 or 13, we lived in northern Minnesota, uh, way out in the woods, and my mom became even more deeply interested in natural foods and cooking and growing. You know, she grew uh, so much uh, of our food. She canned and pickled and froze everything. She, we tapped trees for maple syrup. So much of the food we were consuming was raised by my mom, and so it was, you know, sort of naturally took a, a bent toward the. Uh, adventuresome and especially adventuresome in those days. Did you enjoy that or were you like, this is a little weird? I thought it was a little weird. And, you know, what's interesting is I, I, I was a little proud of it. You know, I mean, if, you know how when you're a teenager, you can't really admit all of your feelings. I, I do think that I was proud of it because my mother, you know, was really self-taught in, in what I'll call the domestic arts. My mother, uh, just absolutely, you know, didn't come from a home where all of that stuff was being prepared or made. Um, you know, she grew up in a more typical kind of like, yay, canned food, let's eat, you know, peas out of a can kind of um, diet. But, you know, in her adult life, she just became deeply interested in being self-sufficient. And she, you know, made, you know, she sewed a lot of our clothes. She, like I said, she grew the food. Um, she, she, we have all these books. And, and it, I, I still, you know, my mom died uh, when she was 45 in, in 1991, and, and I gave away so much of her stuff. But the one sort of segment of things of hers that I have never given away are all of her uh, cookbooks and food preparation books. And so I have, you know, these like books that I'll never use, like how to make home liqueurs, you know, or how to, you know, she made like her own Kahlua, you know, she made... Um, everything you can think about making, she tried to make it. Dandelion wine, uh, you know, she would she would um, buy things in bulk from this like co-op. This was before there were such things as co-ops, really. And um, and and really, she was kind of like a modern pioneer in the kitchen. Were you there with her gardening and pickling, or? Yeah, I yeah. mean, <laughs> I was sort of forced to be there again. Like, you know, I was like, she'd say, you're going to help me weed. And so, you know, I, I both resisted it and was proud of it. I didn't always like the foods that my mom made. You know, I'd be like, why can't we just be having cheeseburgers? Why do we have to be having this weird, you know, quinoa salad with all this crazy stuff in it? Um, so I did, I did complain about it a lot, but I was dragged into helping her. So even though in my adult life, I hate to say, like, I didn't carry forward really any of this stuff she taught me. I, I did have, you know, I have made pickles from cucumbers we grew. I have, you know, canned uh, and stewed uh, tomatoes. I've done, you know, I've gone through that process. I've helped make, you know, maple syrup. We tapped our own trees and boiled it down and all that stuff. So I had that experience, yeah, in, in the kitchen. Um, some pretty deep experience, really. And how often do you say you do that these days? Never, never, absolutely <laughs> never. 
<laughs> I mean, I never do. But you know, it was, and it's, it, I feel it's, I feel really mixed about that. I mean, this is a very big thing for me to actually contemplate. I'm, I'm so glad to get to talk to you about it. It's, it's not something I've ever written about, but it is something I've thought a lot about. And that is, um, you know, trying to make sense of whether I think it's a loss or not that I did not carry on these domestic, you know, being the sort of queen of the domestic arts, um, like my mother was, because on one hand, it is a loss, like she knew how to make and do so much um, in the kitchen and the sewing and the, you know, she just was good. You know, she was really good at that stuff. She was like a hippie Martha Stewart. Um, but I, on one, you know, so on one hand, I feel like it's a loss that I haven't carried that forward after her death. On the other, I, I feel like in some ways my job as her daughter, uh, was to liberate myself from that and, and to, and to have achievement in other arenas that she didn't ever have the opportunity to enter. I picture your household back then not having sugar cereals. Oh my gosh. Yeah, no. I mean, my kingdom for a box of Lucky Charms. And, um, you know, I, I didn't ever have any of that stuff. Um, we, my mother was, you know, always like too much sugar and, you know, this, you know, saying all the things really that this is the way my mother's legacy lives on. You know, there's a constant fight in our household. I have two kids now who are, uh, 13 and almost 12. And yes, they want all the bad things, um, like, like all kids do. And I'm always trying to, um, say no and say no. And in that way, my mother's legacy certainly carries on. <laughs> when you were a kid and not allowed to eat all these things, did it sort of backfire? And did you go crazy if you were at someone else's house or anything like that? Not really, because thankfully my mother was not a zealot. So, and, and I take that same approach with my kids. Uh, it's not like they could never have a soda or never have Doritos or whatever. Um, we actually, they get that stuff, you know, fairly regularly, but we just don't have it in our house so that they're having it um, daily. And that's how it was with, with my growing up. Like we knew, you know, it, if it was a special occasion, my mom would buy soda, which we called pop, of course. It's, it's so, you know, sophisticated and non-Midwestern of me to be calling it anything It'd be, to be calling it soda, <laughs> but we called it pop. And, um, yeah, we would like, you know, on, on somebody's birthday and on, on new year's Eve, we would get soda or Doritos or, you know, those kind of junk foods. And I try to take that same approach with my kids that it's not, you can never have it because yeah, I mean, I know I've observed, um, kids of friends who like never get it and they come to my house and they're just like Tasmanian devils really in the, in the kitchen, they're crawling the cupboards, trying to find things. What was the time period like for you when you were going to take your long journey? And um, like, what was the thought process be behind what you were going to choose to bring with you to eat? Oh, my gosh. Well, as you know, in Wild, I, I just obsessed about food like every long distance hiker does because you are you only have what you've brought and what you've brought is not fresh usually. And um, so what did I decide to take? I tried to bring a variety. You know, it was all uh, essentially dehydrated foods that I would have to boil water to, you know, every, every dinner was you boil water in a pot, you add the packet of whatever, uh, you know, fiesta chicken or <laughs> ramen noodles or, or uh, rice and beans, you know, those kinds of um, just packets that you can buy for very cheap in the grocery store. That was that was my main my main nutrition and food out there aside from, you know, like dried apricots and nuts and things like this. But, but, you know, it was, I had a love hate relationship to those foods because I was so hungry by the end of every day. I mean, really just dinner was such pure pleasure. It was almost ecstasy, but I was also so tired of eating that kind of food. And so you would be like, you know, really eager to get that water boiling and also sort of dreading having to eat the whole pot. Did it ever cross your mind? Like, I don't know if you were athletic growing up, but um, I could eat whatever I want and not have it be and not have it impact the way I look because I am hiking this much. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And that's a really interesting part, I think, of of long distance hiking is you, you really can eat 
like, you know, like a, a football player or something. I mean, you're just, you can't, you burn so many calories because you're essentially getting up and running and walking like, you know, close to a marathon every day, every single day, back to back to back to back. And, you know, in really hard terrain, you're carrying this pack. And it was really interesting to see what happened to my body and also the bodies of, the, of other hikers, especially men, you know, men just lose weight at such a more rapid rate than women. I, I, I even read some study about it. Um, you know, like if you, long distance hikers, if you go on a backpacking trip for a month, the man will lose like double the weight the woman loses, which, you know, is, is kind of, uh, always makes me crazy. My husband, that's what always happens. He, he tries to lose weight and he loses, you know, immediately and, and it takes me forever, but it's just that difference in the bodies. But yeah, I was, um, definitely had a different relationship to food during that time because, you know, I, I was not, I wasn't doing that terrible thing that I do even to this day where you're always like, okay, how many calories is in this thing? How many calories have I burned today? you know, where do I reach that limit? I, I was sort of free of that um, on the Pacific Crest Trail. Yeah. I remember your meal of, what was it, a burger and a milkshake? Yeah. That it was like one of the first meals you had or or could yeah. have? Well, it is what I fantasized. I mean, what's, I mean I'm going to use the word fantasized because it's it, it really is fascinating how the longing for food reaches that kind of almost perverted level, you know, like the way we, the sort of like, uh, you know, like I, I liken it almost to like a sexual fantasy because you're thinking so um, specifically about like exactly what you want. Um, I mean, in fact, I don't even sexually fantasize that way. <laughs> it was just about food. It's just like, oh, that burger or that salad. I would, I would think about a salad and, and kind of rather famously, I also would long for Snapple lemonade uh, when I was on my hike which was really interesting because in my life before my hike, I wasn't drinking Snapple lemonade it, it, for whatever reason that that landed in my mind. And I could not like I just longed for it. And and yeah, the, the, the cheeseburger fantasy. And that has happened over and over when I've taken other hikes. Anytime that I'm in a situation where I'm essentially deprived from from foods, and it's not even like I eat that stuff that much in my normal life. It's just it's suddenly like the brain, you know, the, your mind wants what it wants. Well, that's why I think at the time I was like overcoming my eating disorder. And it was so, it was like one of the first times I had ever seen written out what that fantasy feels like when somebody just thinks so much about food <laughs> in a way right. that is like a sexual desire yeah. um, where you can't think straight. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. You're, you're you become fixated on that 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 notion of that what that thing will be and you know I've experienced it a couple other times in my life uh backpacking um also when I was pregnant with my first child I went and I was living in Brazil on this island called Itaparica off the coast of of uh Brazil and it was in the first months of my pregnancy and I was so sick. I was so nauseated all the time. And all the foods available to me were, were repulsive to me in, in my sort of, you know, not, you know, whoever called it morning sickness was a guy for sure, because it was like 24 seven sickness. And all I wanted was uh, bread or pretzels or pickles. I know that's cliche, but you know, I, and, and I couldn't get any of those foods. And so it was like that too. Like I had this fantasy about the foods that would make me feel better. And I really, really longed for them. Another time was I went to this, I went on and did this like week long fast. And um, I was just literally starving. <laughs> and I just could hardly bear to, I had to push all thoughts of food out of my head. Have you done many fasts? Or was that the first and only one? I've done a couple of them. Um, and, and it wasn't a total fast. It was like a, a kind of raw foods thing, like a juicing raw foods thing. Um, but it was like at a, at a center that they do this. And, and it was interesting. Um, and I, I, so I've done like twice some variation of that kind of thing. And I, I have to say, I'm like, I don't know ever if like there's any like real long-term gain out of something like that. It, you know, it, it definitely um, sort of was enlightening to me to experience what it felt like to really you know, not be able to sort of eat, eat, you know, at all, you know, but um, I don't feel ever that that fasting has, you know, really been that 
important to me or that it's brought such great health benefits. <laughs> yeah, me neither. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm looking through your Instagram feed and I saw that you had birthday burgers and drinks after a hike. Yes. So I you're did. still hiking and eating burgers. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> yeah, that's so funny. I, I you know, I, there, there's, it's a winning combination. What can I say? It's like, you know, to go for a hike, there's something about like, you've, you've really, you know, that cheeseburger, it never tasted better. But what about trail mix? Are you, are you cool with trail mix still or? Yeah, you know, it, it it took me a while, I have to say, that some of the foods that I brought on the PCT, um, you know, it was like, okay, I don't want to see you again for a really long time, you know. And so now I'm back to trail mix. The, always the problem with trail mix, though, is, you know, especially the trail mix that has stuff like little chunks of chocolate or M&Ms or something, you know, I'm only human. It's really hard to not, like, pick those things out, you know, favoring them over, like, the nuts and the raisins. Well, you don't want them to melt. <laughs> That's right. Were you eating energy bars back then? I can't imagine they were very good. Oh, they were horrible. I mean, and I'm forever scarred. Like I, I, I've just, I'm just not an energy bar person. I mean, I, I take that back. Like some Luna, some Luna bars have are pretty dang good, and some kind bars. Like I'm sort of warming to this newer generation of bars. But when I was hiking, I had, um, yeah, I had the sort of old stuff, old school kind of energy bars that were really just these like really. Uh, unappealing kind of dense horrible um things and yeah I never even even on the trail like I I packed them into my boxes because you know of course that's the other thing about taking a long distance hike is that I packed all of my food for for three months you know ahead of time so whatever I put in that box you know was what was in that box that I had you know mailed to myself so you know I stopped eating those those bars like early on and but they there they'd be in every box so I always <laughs> left them in the hiker free box you know wherever I was that was nice of you even yeah somebody else ate them <laughs> yeah um looking through your Instagram feed a little further I you mentioned pickles before I see you had a bunch of pickles in your fridge <laughs> are you a pickle connoisseur yeah, you know, I, I am and here's the thing I love it. you're you're asking me all these things that I never get to talk about so this goes back to my mom, you know, growing those cucumbers and making these pickles. And she made these incredibly good pickles. I mean, they were so delicious. And I have now spent the rest of my life searching for the perfect pickle. And I, I have to say, I've yet to find it exactly. Um, and so I keep buying like all of these pickles. And this is why this picture on my Instagram feed, I think it's probably my refrigerator with like three or four kinds There's of pickles. There's four in it. types: McClure's, Boar's Head, Bubby's, and Moonbrine. What? That's right. What's closest to? Well, it looks like Bubby's has been eaten the most. Oh, that's my husband. My husband's obsession uh, is Bubby's. I mean, we're a hugely my whole family. We're just like pickle eating, you know, here all the time. But you know, I, I love them all. They each have their benefit. But like, I haven't yet found the pickle that this is like this is my dream of pickle. Except I take that back. Many years ago, uh, I used to go to the Portland Farmer's Market when my kids were young. We would go like every Saturday. And there was this stand called Pickleopolis. Pickleopolis, yes. And I don't think, I think they closed down. But they had the perfect pickle. What? Describe it. It was, how do you describe the perfect pickle? (laughs) Well, like, was it more sweet than sour? No, 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 not sweet. No, we are, we are, this has got to be sour and crisp and crunchy. And, you know, that kind of, if if there's a little bit of like sort of garlic, like that sort of garlicky, salty, vinegary. Yeah, no, that's, that's what I love in a pickle. Have you been to Disneyland? (laughs) (laughs) I have. I've been to Disneyland. I was just there a couple months ago. I was just there the other day. And for the first time ever, we got one of those giant pickles. Yeah. And it was very good. Those, that's, that's right. Like that's, I love those kind of big, big pickles in a barrel kind of thing. Yes. It's like, it's like enormous. I mean, it's just like you, it's huge and you end up eating the whole thing. Even yeah. though you, th- you, you, think you, you bite can't. into it like it's an apple yeah. And, yeah. Then, and then you're done. But the thing is, I, last time I went to Disneyland, I had had deep fried pickles and I'm assuming they used those same pickles. Yeah. It, it was incredible because they were in spears, not in chips. Right. So like um, you, it really felt like you were eating a pickle, but it was deep fried. <laughs> yeah, no, that's, 
I, I, I don't even know how that was. It, they thought of that. I mean, it's just like take everything and just deep fry it. Is that the idea? Yeah, but it's it's there's it's a little more subtle than like yeah. something at a fair or whatnot. There's a good breading ratio. There's like an aioli you dip it into, and so it has that perfect amount of sour but savory, and then it's warm but cold. It's yeah, not it's crunchy. Incredible. Yeah. Oh, I gotta try that. I've had I've had deep fried pickles like the chips, as you say, but. Um, yeah, I'd rather just have a good a good pickle. When I was I lived in Ireland in Dublin uh, when I was like nineteen and twenty, and I worked at a vegetarian cafe called Misfits, and um, the, the the guys I worked with behind the counter like nobody was a vegetarian, but we we served vegetarian food, and this guy I worked with would always bring um, his own like packet of hot dogs, like you know like just hot dog hot dogs, and he would put them in the deep fryer and and. And we would eat deep fried hot dogs, which is really the height of wow. horrible. But the deep fried pickles made me remember those those hot dogs. I've had a deep fried hot dog in New Jersey. Apparently, it's a thing in Fort Lee where my mom lives. And I couldn't, I'll be honest, I couldn't tell the difference between that and like just a really crispy hot dog that had been on the grill for a long time. I right. guess because it hadn't just... been breaded. It just was like very burnt on the outside and... It did like that snap thing, like crazy. Yeah, and it doesn't like really absorb the oil because it's just there's it's not a yeah it, it's just sort of on the outside. You're right. Yeah, it still seemed kind of like even worse than eating a hot dog was eating a deep fried hot dog. Yeah. Is my feeling. <laughs> yeah. So were you ever vegetarian? Oh yeah, yeah. I was vegetarian actually for a few different times in my life. Uh, there was a tiny window. Um, during my childhood, actually, that I was a vegetarian when when my mom was, um, you know, really getting into this kind of natural, you know, natural food stuff at the at the sort of outset, you know, she was like, let's, you know, there are all these reasons not to eat meat, um, mostly ethical. And, and so my mother, we did that for a little while. Um, and then throughout my life, you know, uh, throughout my 20, you know, periods in my 20s that I was a vegetarian, then, uh, you know, I periodically, go to vegetarianism. Um, and I, I, now what I do is I try to be really mindful about eating ethically, um, eating only, uh, meat that's like humanely raised and, you know, all of that stuff. I, I, I love the taste of meat, but I'm, you know, I really am troubled by uh, obviously the, the way that, um, that meat is right, you know, is made in America and throughout the world. So I, I try to be a vegetarian, like part of the time, you know, half the time. And um, what does what does a typical day look like for you these days? A typical day um, or a, a typical, typical food diet day? F- food day? Yeah, a typical diet food day, or not even diet. I just meant like I use day. diet in the term of like what you just eat da- daily. What I eat, right, right, right. Yeah. Well, you know, I I've um, I usually have one cup of coffee every morning. Uh, that's that's my my thing. I don't. Um, have a typical breakfast some mornings I'll be like you know probably about two mornings a week I have like a real breakfast um where I'll have like my eggs my my daughter Bobby has really gotten into cooking lately she's it's interesting she's named after my mom and she's far more likely to uh, become you know the kind of person in the kitchen that my mom was than than I am she she just has always loved to cook and bake and she's gotten into making eggs uh, lately. And so she'll often make us some eggs and, and toast and, you know, we'll just have a breakfast like that. But a lot of mornings lately, I've just been having a cup of coffee. What do you um, do? And what do you put in your coffee? Just half and half. And this is a real problem, like around the world. I travel a lot and uh, I'm about to go on actually a two month trip with my family uh, to all of these countries in, in November and December. But one of the things that I'm already sort of bracing for is the lack of half and half, um, <laughs> you know, throughout the world. And because and, and people are always like, well, it's, you know, it's the same as milk. And I'm like, it's absolutely not the same as milk, you know, and, and you, it's really hard to find half and half uh, in, in elsewhere. So, you know, it's the number one thing I love about America is, is half and half. <laughs> but, and then by, so lunch, I, I tend to be like, try to have a salad every day. I try, I t- you know, we'll have a lean protein, whether that be like salmon or chicken breast or some, you know, I, I, I tend to be sort of 
a healthy, you know, a fairly healthy eater. I love carbohydrates. I love bread. That is really, you know, dietarily and calorie wise, probably, um, you know, my biggest struggle is I, I would just be perfectly happy to eat like an entire baguette, you know, every night with a bottle of wine, I, I would be a, with some cheese, I'd be a very happy, um, happily doing that. <laughs> so I try to moderate that a bit. And then every day, I probably have a glass or two of wine. I love I love wine. Do you like to cook? You know, um, I I kind of like to cook. I, I'm not ever going to be that person who, um, you know, makes a glorious dinner seven nights a week. Part of that is my lifestyle. I'm really busy. Part of it is that I live in Portland, Oregon, where, you know, I'm surrounded by these amazing sort of natural grocery stores with incredible delis. And it's just easier to actually buy food that somebody else cooked for, for my family rather than me taking the hours it would take to cook it. Um, but once in a while I do, uh, like to make a meal and, and get pleasure from, from doing that and from having people enjoy it. What are some recipes or go-tos that you gravitate towards? Well, I, I make a really yummy, like a sort of uh, sesame peanut pasta dish that, you know, my husband absolutely um, loves. And whenever it's his birthday or a special occasion, he's like, he begs me to make it for him. And it is, um, it, you can make it vegetarian or not, you know, you add just vegetables and you can add chicken or shrimp or tofu or whatever to it. But it, it, the, the secret is in the sauce. It's this very garlicky kind of, you know, sesame peanut garlic sauce that I toss with with uh, fettuccine or linguine or something. Um, I also, a friend of mine several years ago made this uh, really like unique and amazing pizza um, that uh, is not a traditional pizza. Instead of having a tomato sauce or a basil sauce, it's actually a sauce that is just composed of equal parts of three ingredients, um, walnuts, fresh garlic, and pineapple. And, um, and on top of it, you put like mozzarella cheese and, and feta cheese and olives. That sounds and, delicious. Yeah. It's whenever I make it, like people are like, what is this? I mean, this is, you know, it, it is really quite delicious. And my friend entered her recipe in, into, I think it was like the Minnesota State Fair. And, and she got like, you know, she was like, I don't know if she got first place, but she was like in the top three. And um, so I call it Lee and John's Amazing Pizza because my my friends are Lee and John. And every time I make it, people are are blissed out. You have to love like garlic, feta, olive kind of stuff. But that pineapple and walnut in the mix is just incredible. It's funny. You don't really think of pineapple on pizza except for the Hawaiian pizza. Right. Well, in this, you don't even know the pineapple is in there because to make the sauce, what you do is you put the walnuts and the pineapple and the garlic into a blender and, you know, just blend them. And like literally those three things make, they, they form like a, a paste that you, that you spread over the, the crust, which I make myself as a little ode to my mother. I did learn how to make, you know, my own pizza crust. Um, and then on top you put the mozzarella feta and, and both green olives and Kalamata olives. So yeah, you, that, that pineapple and walnuts just like sort of in there you don't even know you're eating it but it it makes um it brings out the flavor in an amazing way i know we're going to jump around here a little bit but i wanted to go back to college days and what yes. and what your food looked like then like what were you eating in college wow let us go back in time you know oh i think you know there's this interesting period um, that, that I, was, I guess I've sort of forgotten when it comes to like the way I ate or cooked. And, and it is that because like, you know, you leave the, the childhood home where it, at least in my case, it was my mom providing dinner every night um, to suddenly it's like up to me. And, and I, I did turn to the typical, a lot of the typical college fare of like, you know, boxed macaroni and cheese, which, which now is back in my life because my kids love it. You know, they, they're like, mommy, you know, they, they're always making themselves mac and cheese. But, um, I ate stuff like that, you know, and it took me a while to really learn how to like cook for myself and make, like make healthier choices for myself and not just eat kind of like the, the, the simple things that you buy in the grocery store, like, like that sort of ramen, like the typical stuff like that. But so I would say there were a couple of years in there that it was like sketchy. I remember making a lot of burritos too. Like, you know, I'd always get like tortillas and beans and cheese and lettuce and that kind of like burrito taco night kind of thing. Um, a lot in those college days and chili. I, I don't know if like, 
why I thought that chili was an easy thing to make. But it, but it was. I would make myself chili. So it sounds yeah. like you had a kitchen. This is not like dorm life. Yeah. Well, yeah. No, when I lived in the dorm, I only lived in the dorm the first year of college. And, and then I like the, you know, cafeteria stuff. I didn't, you know, the, it's interesting that I didn't gain the like freshman 15, um, though I, you know, I slowly gained weight, I guess, over throughout college. But I don't know if I would attribute it to that cafeteria eating. I didn't really go crazy um, with the cafeteria eating. I mean, I know you've struggled with an eating disorder. And I, during during those years of my kind of late teens and early 20s, um, I wouldn't say I had an eating disorder, but I had what like so many women have, which is this really deep struggle with my body, um, this deep struggle with, you know, trying to figure out how not to, you know, loathe my body or feel um, constantly worried about how much I weighed or what I looked like, to, you know, to people. And, and, you know, I think that's been a lifelong struggle, but it was really um, at a peak during those years, because of course, I was, you know, at that stage where I was really becoming a woman, and um, trying to sort of come to, come to grips with what it meant to be a female and have a female body in this culture that has a very narrow view of women's bodies. Yeah. Can we talk a little bit about that a little more? Yeah. Um, what is that like for you now where you're famous and people see you on a regular basis? You know, like, how does that affect you today? Does it affect you? Yeah, it. De- I mean, I want to say that it doesn't, um, but that would be a lie. It's it's always been a struggle. You know, the first person who called me fat uh, was my father when I was like three or four. Um, my my sister. I have an older sister who's three years older, and she's like I'm like five six now, and she's five feet. She's always been smaller than me, just like you know, physically smaller. And so even when we were little girls you know, I was the kind of um, sturdier, like I had a sturdier body, if you will. And my father was already saying things to me like, you're the fat one. And um, all through my, my childhood, I, I mean, even as a young, young girl, I worried about it, I was sensed that it like it was better to be skinny. And so when I was in high school, I really did have um, a problem, I starved myself. And, um, you know, teachers when I was like in ninth and 10th grade, um, and I've never really written much about this, but uh, p- teachers would like pull me out of class and to talk to me. This was really the beginning of when we had any consciousness about eating disorders. And so there was this real mixed message message like teachers would talk to me and say, I'm worried about you because you are so skinny. You're so skeletal. Um, you know, do you want a sandwich or do you want a candy bar? I mean, literally, they would offer me food. And so there was that. But but there was also all of the positive attention I got for being really skinny. Like I was five, six and uh, I weighed, you know, in the nineties, you know, I, I remember thinking, okay, I, I can never weigh above 105, which is just absolutely Whoa. absurd. Yeah. And so I was that skinny and, um, and I couldn't sustain that because uh, I just couldn't, I mean, I was literally starving myself. And, and then, you know, I also during, you know, when I was about, ten, you know, by the time I was about 16 or 17, I started running. I went, I joined the cross country team and the track team and I had to eat so that I could do that. And I gained, you know, I, I immediately went up to about 120, 130 pounds right in there. And, um, d- but I definitely was like, okay, you know this, this is like too much. I always battled it. And then when I did go to college and and was in that period, I talked about a moment ago where I was really trying to come to terms with what it meant to be a woman. I was also, you know, my, my, my feminism was deepening. I was always a feminist, but in those years I really, really became a feminist and I could see, you know, what has been done to women and girls in this culture when it comes to so many things, but their bodies in, in this case. And I, I just decided that, part of what I was going to do as a feminist is not adhere to those messed up values we have about women and bodies. And so I let myself be heavier than, um, than, you know, women are rewarded for being. And, um, you know, since then I'm 49 now, my weight has gone up and down over the years by, um, by a margin of about 50 pounds. Um, I have been at my skinny end and I, and I, which to most people isn't very skinny. It's like a size 10, um, which, you know, in certain circles would be not 
small at all. <laughs> and then, you know, up to like a size 16. And I've really kind of gone all my adult life, you know, between those two, those, those two margins, if you will. And, you know, it's, it's been an, it's been a, a struggle and a study. And for me to step on stage, literally in front of thousands of people or be on camera, um, when I'm at that high end of my body weight, it's, it's something I always have to really grapple with. I have to tell myself, you're okay. You didn't get here because of, you know, what your body looks like or what your weight is. And this was especially um, true during this season of what I call it my red carpet season when the movie of wild came out and I was doing all of this publicity, you know, literally, you know, standing side by side with Laura Dern and Reese Witherspoon. And I I told myself, I walked into my bathroom one day and I looked myself in the eye in the mirror and I said to myself, you cannot think anything negative about your body or your looks, that you just are not allowed to do that. And I took that to heart. And every time I thought something negative, I said, no, you're not going to think that. Like I pushed that thought away. And, you know, really so much of, I think the way to feel good about yourself is to, to tell yourself a different story, to remember what your values are. And um, to very actively kind of quash those those negative voices into your head so that you can thrive. And and that's that's the only solution I have to this. Do I do I feel like I'm too fat right now? Absolutely. Do I feel self-conscious? Absolutely. Do I do I think that I need to spend all of my energy, uh, you know, sort of addressing that with myself to make to, to make my body conform to the ideal? Absolutely not. And. And that is, you know, I think it's been a lifelong struggle for me, to be honest. It's, it's, it's a hard one. Wow. Thank you for sharing that. I completely relate. In college, I was, I believe you were too. I was a women's studies major. I was a double major. So women's studies was one of my majors. And that same for you, correct? Yeah, I was a double major in women's studies and English. Yeah, I was women's studies and music. And um, that was when I first learned about feminism. And um, that's when I first learned about eating disorders. And uh, studying them and insisting that I was going to be a feminist made it really hard (laughs) to uh, justify my eating disorder. Um, However, it's so complex that there it was. And... As, you know, someone who has to be on camera a lot as an actor, um, it's something that I'm constantly struggling with. But I agree with you that part of it is the actual looking at yourself and saying you have to change the thought pattern. You just have to. Um, Otherwise, like you have to let go of the guilt and the shame that go along with thinking that way. Because sometimes you can have those thoughts, but not have the guilt and the shame. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I think, and I, I think that that's really true. That you can just say, I mean, I, maybe that's the place I'm trying to reach. And, and, and you know, for me too, I'm sure you have thought about this. Like, you know, there is uh, trying to lose weight because you want to be healthier, or because you feel like, okay, you know, my diet isn't isn't um, serving me. Uh, in this regard, you know, it, but what's, what happens is it's, it becomes really hard to kind of separate what you're doing for yourself and because it makes you feel better because of health or, or some other kind of measure than the culture that says, as a woman, you are less important if you, you know, weigh above a certain weight, right? I mean, yeah. that's, I think that's like such a journey to, to, to parse those things out. And I think it's important for us to just know that the weight fluctuation thing is is a normal thing. You know, I think so many times when one goes on a diet, you hear like, get rid of those clothes. Those are no longer you. And in fact, something that was something I struggled with a lot because I was always, you know, fluctuating between 10 and 20 pounds uh, throughout my eating disorder. And um, I just started saving all of my clothes, no matter what, just so I could have it in the garage not to think about it, but just to know it was there in case. And if I did change a size, there it was. And in fact, right before we started recording, I asked my husband to bring up one of those bins. <laughs> um, I'm looking at it right now. It's right behind me um, because my my size has inevitably changed once again. Yeah. And, and that's just what it is. It's not judgment on that of, oh, I've gained weight or, oh, I've lost weight. But here's 
here's the wardrobe that fits who I am right now because as my life has shown me, that is what my life is, is this fluctuation. Well, it's interesting though. It's hard to, um, it's hard to say it's not judgment because like innately I do think, you know, it's hard not to think like, Oh, you know, gain weight, negative, lose weight, positive. One, one of the most, one of the times in my life that I looked absolutely the best for sure is the year uh, after my mom died. So I mentioned, you know, she died when she was 45, I was 22 and, and everyone in that year of my deep grief was like, Oh my God, Cheryl, you look amazing. (laughs) And it was because I lost so much weight. I was, I was so sad. I couldn't eat. And, and one of the, the lines I wrote in my first book torch, which is, you know, it's a novel, it's fiction, but it's, but it's a lot about a a family uh, when the mother dies young of cancer. One of the lines I wrote about my main female character was grief became her. And I meant that in, in both ways, you know, that I became grief, but also grief was becoming on me because I was thin and, um, people liked it. And that, that is so strange to me, you know, I mean that like that, that we, that we don't even, uh, I mean, that we do innately, we're like, wow, you look terrific. If you've lost weight, you, you don't look terrific if you've gained, you know, as a general rule. And it's hard to, for me to separate the judgment from, from that, you know, I mean, even though I've told myself one's not good and one's not bad, it's it's hard for me to completely divorce myself from that way of thinking. Yeah, it's it's it is difficult. Well, yeah. let's let's talk about Portland today. And God, you have so much good food there. I know you like salt and straw. I love I salt and straw. Um, let's talk, <laughs> let's talk about uh, the Portland food scene a little bit and tell me like where you would recommend to go eat. Oh my gosh. Well, the the Portland food scene is kind of overwhelming in the this in in that there are so many places to eat and there are so many amazing options at, at, sort of at every level whether that be um you know the 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 sort of food cart scene which is astounding you can get like the most sort of gobsmackingly delicious meals, you know, for like very for under $10. It's that's that's amazing. And then, you know, the restaurant scene and um and so many different kinds of food. So I just want to say, you know, and also wine. I'm not a beer drinker, but beer. I mean, it's just there. There is a kind of uh, sense of Portland being this like food and beverage wonderland. Um, so one of the things that happens to me when I am asked, like, where do you, you know people who are visiting Portland? Where should I eat? I'm like, well, just there are too many options. When I first moved to Portland 25 years ago. It was like there were there there were the you know ten restaurants you could tell everyone to go to, and now it's just like there are so many places. So with that in mind, where do I love to eat? There's this place called Bamboo Bamboo Sushi, um, and they do sustainable sushi. I love sushi, and 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 it's not only do they have incredible sushi, but like a lot of um, uh, Japanese restaurants, they also can make, you know, I have to feel like I have to advocate on behalf of the cheeseburger. They make an amazing cheeseburger. <laughs> um, <laughs> so bamboo sushi, another great place along those lines that, that combines that kind of like sushi esque, um, situation with, uh, with a, a great burger is the Yakuza lounge. Um, and do you, do you want, do you want like real, re- you know, like restaurant recommendations? Really? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So those are, those are two places I've, lately been they've been like my total my total jam um one place if you want a a little sort of the old style uh portland and and also just like you know the best steak in town is the ringside on um on west burnside it's like this really you know this this incredibly um you know traditional kind of like old portland you you know it's like that old steakhouse you walk in and they have you know signatures of people who've come to the restaurant on the walls and stuff. My, my family and I um, always have Christmas Eve dinner there. Um, and they just have beautiful steaks and fish and so forth. Um, let's see. What else? What, what about, um, is there like a diner or a breakfast place? Oh yeah. My favorite, my favorite, uh, breakfast, uh, place is the city state diner. Um, in Northeast Portland on, on 28th. It's just this great diner. But, but what I love about that diner is there's, it has like a Portland flair, you know, you're still going to be able to kind of 
um, get that, like, you know, it's not just an eggs Benedict, it's like a crab cake Benedict or a salmon, you know, like there's, there's a kind of spirit of, of, of the Northwest on the menu, which I love. Another great one is the Cadillac Cafe, uh, which is in my neighborhood and my family and I uh, go there more often than not. And, um, they have great, um, like breakfasts and lunches and so forth. Um, they're really, the list goes on and on and on. There are so many, you know, Tasty and Sons, um, is a, a really wonderful sort of small plate restaurant where you can, you know, you have the excuse to order a whole bunch of different things and you get to, to try a lot of stuff. I, I, I have often have taken people there, um, when they're visiting in town. Um, they also have a taste, it's called Tasty and Alder, which is, uh, you know, they're both, they're affiliated with each other. Um, Pock Pock is the sort of forerunner of the sort of Thai street food in Portland. And I think now they have branches elsewhere in yes, New York. Yes, they, they were in yeah. LA for a little bit too. Yeah. So when, when we were shooting the movie of Wild uh, here, uh, it was shot in Oregon and Portland and I was very much involved. Uh, I took Reese to Pock Pock um, and she loved it. She's, she just, uh, whenever she comes back, um, wants to go there. Um, another great place. Oh, you know, there's this really wonderful place, uh, that is just really small and, and kind of like the, the real foodies in town know about it. Um, because whenever I ask for advice from my foodie friends, they say, go to Davenport and it's, it's uh, just exquisite. I've taken a few friends there a few times. Um, and we all loved it. That sounds there's, wonderful. Davenport. Yeah. Davenport. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's amazing. It's small, just a few tables and, but a really, really great wine list and a really great, um, chef. I do love a small intimate place. I with, do too. With no lines. <laughs> well, that's right. That's right. I mean, I think that, um, that sometimes, you know, like there's a certain point where a restaurant gets so popular that you're just like, listen, I'll just go to the pub, you know, <laughs> you know, I'm like, I'm not going to wait in line all the time. So you, you got to pick your battles with the food. Well, Cheryl, thank you so much for doing this. Is there a way that people can find you online? Yes, you can always find me at, at my website, CherylStray.com. And I'm on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook, all with my name, Cheryl Stray. I'll have the links up on the Actors Diet. Thank you. Thank you so much. It was lovely talking to you.